0: Thank you, Terry, for reading our text for us this evening. Let's open in a word (laughs) of prayer. Father, you know more than anyone how much we stand in need of your help tonight. And so we pray that our time together would be profitable. We know that you've given us your word because it is useful and profitable for our lives. And so, Father, would you bridge the gap from this text which seems so distant and so obscure and so irrelevant, perhaps, and speaks straight to our hearts. Help us even to see Christ and our need for him and use this time for your kingdom. So to that end, Father, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away and be forgotten. Let your word remain and let it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I need to inform you first that David will not get another mother-in-law tonight. That will come next week because we have 44 verses in this chapter. And so that is uh, already a lot to cover. There's some news that is so pivotal and so historic that when it's reported, only the bare facts are needed. An example of this would be the day after Kennedy's assassination. The Dallas Times Herald newspaper heading said this: President dead. Another newspaper said JFK is dead. The same was true after 9/11 or after the Titanic, just the bare essentials were often reported. New York Times, their headline said, America attacked. That's how First Samuel 25 begins. Look at verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at this house, at his house. Now we shouldn't interpret, interpret the author's simplicity and brevity here to mean that this is an unimportant, trivial fact. Samuel's death marked a decisive transition in the flow of redemptive history. On the one hand, perhaps you remember that Samuel was the last of the judges, this diverse group of spirit-filled men and women that God had provided for Israel to save them, often from their enemies, but also sometimes from themselves. A reminder that even though God's people often foolishly and pig-headedly pursue sin, God graciously intervenes. And keeps us from destroying our lives and even ruining his plan. God is sovereign. Samuel was the last of these judges. Those who ruled over God's people in the midst of the chaos of sin. But Samuel was also the first of the prophets. Unlike most of the judges, Samuel communed with God and spoke for God. He literally brought God's word to God's people. And so in this sense, Samuel was the first technically, of a long line of men who would bring the word of God to God's people. A line that would eventually culminate in the life and the person of Christ, who is and was the word, the final word from God. So Samuel's death is making the way for a new era. He's getting ready for the kings. You remember part of God's promise to to Israel was that he was going to establish a throne and a kingdom in Israel. And that it would be an everlasting throne that was occupied by an everlasting king. And this everlasting king would bring everlasting peace. A peace that we still long for to to this day. So when Samuel died, God was removing him. And he was getting his leadership off the scene to make way for the leadership of his king, his new king. And so even Samuel's death reminds us of the sure promises of God. But life must go on after death, and for David, God's anointed one, that means more and more trouble. So, because of the forty-four verses in this chapter, I think, uh, and I and I'm committed to reading passages in their entirety. Um, I'm only going to cover the first thirty-one verses tonight, and we will consider the overlapping lives of David, and Nabal or Nabal, depending on where you're from or how smart you think you are, and Abigail. Which brings us to the main idea for our text this evening. Even the choicest of God's servants are desperately in need of saving. Tonight we'll see the saving power of God magnified as he saves us not only from the sins of others, but also from ourselves. We can see this in several scenes tonight. Let's first start with the setting, and we'll see how David is a good neighbor. The story begins with David still in the wilderness and facing another logistical problem. The Bible is full of these practical problems, which encourages us because it's relevant to our lives. David was faced with the problem, how does he continually supply and feed his growing army of 600 men? And probably included their, their families as well. Well, the answer, according to David, was found in the rich local guy, Nabal. Now, before we talk much about what type of man Nabal was, let's try to understand the dynamics of the situation. It took me multiple readings of the text to try to figure this out. So I wouldn't think that just one reading would, would make it uh, plainly clear. The text tells us that Nabal was an incredibly wealthy man who lived in a land where David and his men, right? Remember his army of men, his, his uh, commandos, had been living. And if you know anything about military history, you know that generally speaking, when a large unregulated military force is in an area, bad things often happen, All right. When they have nothing to do, bad things often happen, It takes a tremendous amount of restraint and leadership for this army not to take advantage of their power and to take advantage of the people who are around them. Well, David demonstrated such military leadership. He had ensured that his men lived in peace with the locals. That is, they didn't steal... Possessions or food or crops or livestock. They didn't rape the women. They didn't get into bar fights, right? In fact, the text tells us that they were actually a blessing to the surrounding community. Instead of using their power to take, they used their power to protect. In fact, it's, the text makes it clear that Nabal's interest flourished under the presence of David's army. You see that in verse 7 and verses in verse 17. Now, I won't spend too much time on this tonight, but I think one early, perhaps minor application for us is to consider how David was a good neighbor in, his, in this community. He's a model of a good neighbor. Under wise, godly leadership, David's men actually illustrate for us, I think in part, the type of light and the type of life and the type of influence that we as Christians should have in our own communities. They protected the innocent and the vulnerable. They respected the property of others. They were honest in their dealings, even when they had the power to get away with much, much more. And so for us as Christians, should we not remember that in our neighborhoods, that our presence in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our workplaces should be of unusual benefit to those who are around us? And that's actually a testimony, not only of the glory of Christ, but it's actually giving people a taste of what the kingdom of God is like. This is especially important for David, who is going to be the next king. Because remember, the king, God's king, was to rule according to God's law. And God is very concerned about justice and mercy. The twin ethical theme we see all through the Old Testament and then carried into the New Testament. It's a summary of God's civil law. How man is to live with each other. Mercy and justice. Well, David, uh, if we look at his request, we can understand this. It seems that since he got so upset with Nabal's response, that David must have, he could have had some sort of agreement with Nabal, right? Did you catch that in the text? David and his men went and asked for help. Nabal said, ha ha, no way, I've never heard of you. And David's like, fine, I'll kill you, right? (laughs) Children, 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 right? It's more likely that there was probably a very strong cultural expectation for Nabal to share out of his extreme abundance. An expectation that would have been widely understood by all in that culture. Particularly so because it was shearing time. A time of, much like the time of harvest, a time of abundance. And there was a long custom in Israel that this was to be a Season of generosity, a season of liberal kindness, especially to relieve the distress of the needy. And so David is asking a request that I think we can interpret as being reasonable especially in light of the good treatment that he offered, that his men offered Nabal. So whether it was a contract or whether it was cultural, it was a reasonable request. But that brings us to the next major part of this text, and that is Nabal. Nabal, Nabal, Nabal. Nabal the destructive fool. As we've said many times throughout the book of Samuel, the author of Samuel uses contrasts to make his point. If you miss that, you're going to be frustrated with Samuel, right? You've got to understand and you've got to see how contrasts are used to highlight good and bad. And there are many contrasts in this text, especially between David and Nabal, but also between them and Abigail. There are a number of textual descriptions of Nabal that prove to be very revealing to us that are worth our consideration. Now let me just go ahead and say this at the out front so that you see where I'm going with this. That if we put together this biblical description of Nabal, we will find what I would describe as the picture of the consummate fool. But I'm reading Proverbs right now as part of my morning Bible reading, and I'm reading through Proverbs as part of that. You see the Bible talking again and again about the way of the fool. Well, David, or Nabal, is the picture of the consummate fool. So pay attention as we look at how the text describes him and as we consider his life. Because if we consider his life, we'll see the life of a fool. And it's a warning to us not to imitate him. But the first thing we see about Nabal is how rich he was there in verse 2. One commentator even pointed out, and I think it's worth sharing with you, that even before we learn of his name, which is significant, we hear about how rich he is. Which is appropriate, because as we get to know, as we get to know Nabal, we learn that his life, his identity, his very happiness is wrapped up in his possessions, he is a man who is defined by what he owns. Nabal lives to one, one. The same commentator said Nabal lives to defend his property, and he dies in an orgy enjoying his property. In other words, Nabal is an idolater. And he finds his significance, he finds his joy, he finds his hope, he finds his satisfaction. The things that make him smile, what he must have to be happy, is stuff. This is getting closer to home, isn't it, right? Make you feel a little uncomfortable. Nabal was an idolater. After being told about Nabal's riches, we learn of his name. Nabal, which in Hebrew means fool. Now, I'm assuming that his mother did not give him that name. It was probably given to him as some people watched his conduct. But more than his greed and his name, it, there's more than his greed and name that condemn him. The descriptions that come from his wife and that comes from his servants make it clear that this is a man that, though he has a lot of money, has no character. Are there any folks like that running around today? He's a fool in the biblical sense, not just a silly boy, but a stupid, foolish man, a man who has forfeited his soul to gain the world. There's an important lesson to us that we can't properly explore tonight about the danger of loving money, and we should heed. But notice some other descriptions in the text. Verse 4 tells us that in contrast to his wife Abigail, who is discerning and beautiful, Nabal was harsh and behaved badly. Right? It's childish language. One translator described it as saying he was hard and nasty. It gets worse. In verse 17, the, the text tells us that Nabal was in fact so worthless and so arrogant that no one could even talk with him. Okay, remember, we're putting together the picture of a fool. But have you ever known someone like that? Someone who is so consumed with his own ideas... So consumed with his own pleasures that you can't even talk to him? You might be able to have a conversation, but you can't really talk with him. You can't speak with him about what is meaningful in life. Have you ever been like that? But there's more. When David's request reaches Nabal in verse 10, not only is it refused, but Nabal turns around and goes on the attack. He turns to a slanderous type of speech. And that's what fools do. They are quick to attack others, especially when they feel confronted, and they are doing so out of their own insecurity. Nabal pretends not to know David, which is silly. David is the most famous man in all of Israel. And then he brings unsubstantiated false charges against David. He said, Oh, he's probably a runaway slave. Fools are quick to be verbally abusive and to criticize others and are unwilling to entertain criticism of themselves. Verse 17 says that even his servants knew that you could not even approach him. It was not even possible to approach him or reason with him. Therefore, it wasn't even worth it. But perhaps the most telling thing about Nabal the fool was that like all fools, Nabal only loved himself. He only loved himself. He was greedy. Out of his absurd abundance, out of his exorbitant wealth, he refused to help those who were in need. Nabal's wealth existed for one person. Nabal. Let me tell you, those who are selfish with their money and their materials will be selfish with all sorts of other things in their lives, and it will manifest itself in all sorts of other prideful ways. What misery he and those around him must have lived in. But it's clear from the dialogue between Abigail and his servant that though he was rich and though that his family was in ruins, his household was in ruins, This is characteristic of the fool according to Proverbs chapter 11 verse 29. Listen carefully to this text. Any of you who live in a household, okay? Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be the servant to the wise of heart. Nabal's marriage was in such shambles that his wife had to go behind his back just to keep the household from being slaughtered. In other words, we're seeing Nabal was a fool. If someone someone was to take all the teaching of the Proverbs and pile them together into the essential fool, I think it would have been Nabal. He was a spiritual, moral, social, familial disaster. And all of it could be traced back to his heart. He had a dysfunctional worship relationship with God. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. Friends, there's so many ways that we could apply this lesson to our lives. But let me put it like this. The condition of our hearts will always overflow into the way that we treat other people. We don't have time to go through in detail all of the pain, all of the domestic pain that we can imagine took place in this household. But we know that the condition of our hearts will always overflow into how we treat other people. That's why the Bible is so insistent that our relationships be consistent with the faith that we profess. You cannot be a healthy Christian with unhealthy relationships. It doesn't make sense biblically. Because healthy Christians understand that their relationship with God changes all of their outward relationships. That's why it's so important that our relationships be consistent, the way we treat others be consistent with our profession of faith. Some of us have in our history a trail of broken, busted up relationships. And we may be inclined to blame it on someone else. We say, oh, it's their fault. Oh, this person and this person and this person was their fault. And I'll, I'll tell you, friends, when I meet folks that have gone from church to church to church to church, I'm very cautious Right, Because people often leave churches because they don't like the people that are there. There's often a sign of a problem. If you have a history of busted up relationships, have you ever considered what is the common denominator in all these broken relationships? Well, you're involved in every one of those. Could it be you? Are are those questions that we ask ourselves about our broken relationships? relationships. Even as God's people, we must be careful to heed the wisdom of the scriptures and avoid the way of the fool in his manifest folly. And we do that by fearing God. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So let me give you, from this text, the summary of the fool. Fools are men and women whose lives are marked by idolatry, reckless behavior, and broken relationships. They are so prideful that you can barely speak to them, much less reason with them or point out their faults. They're arrogant, quick to slander others, and perhaps, above all, blind to their own sin. The fool Well, let's look at David's response here. Let's turn now because David's response, which we'll address in more detail next time. uh, But let's look at his response. Now, remember, over the last several chapters of Samuel, we have been on a roller coaster with David. David is a spiritual roller coaster. Sometimes he's up. Sometimes he's down. Sometimes he responds well and acts like the future king of Israel. And other times he looks more like Saul or Goliath. And so when David gets word from his servants about Nabal's response, if you're reading the text carefully, you should be asking, how is David going to respond? How is he going to respond? Well, the answer is he did not respond well. His response was rash and brazen. Look down at verse 13. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, right? In other words, you won't share with me? Fine, I'll kill you. Wait a minute. Where is the merciful David? When when did we see merciful David? One chapter ago. One chapter ago. Where is the merciful David from chapter twenty-four? What happened? Well, as we'll see next time, that God in his providence actually uses Abigail to protect David even from himself, from sinning. He protects David from David. But what can we learn from another one of David's relapses? I mean, how many is this? Sure, we've been holding Saul and Goliath and Nabal and the sons of Eli. We're holding these guys up as wicked men not to imitate. And we're holding David up many times as one to imitate. Yet he is so spiritually schizophrenic. Well, I think there are two critically important lessons here that are important for each one of us. The first one is this. We are most susceptible to temptation after success. We are most prone to sin after spiritual victory. David had just come off a pretty major success after sparing King Saul. David was probably feeling pretty good about himself. Man, I'm so merciful. I am so much more merciful than Saul. I will be a way better, more merciful, better, best king than Saul. I right, you, you see where he's going. He probably posted it on Facebook. Everybody, here's a piece of Saul's robe. I didn't kill him. Hashtag mercy. Right. <laughs> but I can tell you from my personal experience that as a growing Christian, and as I see and talk with others, that we tend to be most prone to sin after a time of spiritual victory. This is especially true in the early years of maturity, when you really start to grow out of the infancy stage, out of the babe stage, into the spiritual adolescent and young adult, especially in those times, I think we are most prone to this. It's because we let our guards down. We congratulate ourselves a little bit. You know what I'm talking about. Have you felt that afterglow of faithfulness? right? You know what I'm talking about? When you finally, you said no and no one was around. You feel good about yourself, doesn't it? Especially when you hear other people talk about their struggles and you're like, man, I struggled with that like two years ago, right? We feel the pride of spiritual accomplishment. Our spiritual successes always include a temptation, one that's baked into them, one that says, you don't need God as much. Look how mature you are. You don't need them as much as those weak Christians. Shouldn't you be a teacher or a deacon? You're so mature. This is because we fail to see how dependent on God we are for every one of our successes. And so without noticing, what we actually do is we loosen our dependence on God, which is the key to success in the first place. We let our flesh take a quick breather. AWP comments on this, and he says it so well. No man stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. The strongest are immediately as weak as water when the power of the Spirit is withdrawn. The most mature and experienced Christian acts foolishly the moment he's left to himself. Have you tasted that in your life? We're most susceptible to temptation after success. But there's another important lesson here. Spiritual inconsistencies remind the growing Christian we still need a Savior. Spiritual inconsistencies, I hope you notice these in your life. There's lots in mine. Lots in mine. Spiritual inconsistencies remind us of our unchanging need of a Savior. David was spiritually inconsistent. One day, in one set of circumstances with one person, he's merciful. The next day, maybe he didn't sleep as well, maybe he was hungry. He wanted to murder a greedy fool, right? Do you see the difference? One day he's defeating Goliath in faith. The next day, he was a perverted, pornography-watching, murderous voyeur. He was. Are we any better than David? You and I will never, like David, outgrow our need for a Savior. And as frustrating as our spiritual inconsistencies are, I mean, have you noticed these? How you will be, you can be so much kinder at church, but then you go at home and you are a pill, right? You can be so patient with people at work and you go home and you snap at somebody, right? All you have to do, change the time, change the circumstances, change your sleep patterns, your caffeine intake, how much sugar you haven't had, Just to the weather, right? Anything? Like, have you ever done that? (laughs) And, And all of a sudden, it's all different. Just one little thing changes. Usually, it's just the person. And we realize we're not as mature as we thought. These spiritual inconsistencies drive me nuts in my life. I'm like, I thought I was growing there. And it looks like I just took 10 steps backwards. They are foghorn reminders of our daily need for a Savior. So every time you are under the conviction of the Spirit, as discouraging as it can be to fail again, every day you face some new problem in your heart, some new sin to overcome, some new temptation to sort through, some new trace of Nabal-like foolishness, don't despair. Brothers and sisters, don't despair. Call to Jesus. You need a Savior, and there is a Savior. Consider his perfect work on the cross. Let it be new and fresh to you again. I've said it before, the gospel is most beautiful after sin. When you see new sin, you have to look at the gospel new, and then all of a sudden you realize, it's bigger than I thought because I'm worse than I thought. That's the pattern of growth. So remember that the author of faith is also the perfecter of faith. You and I are not the perfecters of our faith. So don't give up. Don't despair. Run to Jesus. Now thankfully, David continued this pattern that we're noticing in his life. We've said it, um, we've said it many times. The key to David's life was not that he didn't sin. He was a royal sinner. It's not that he didn't sin, but it's that when he sinned, he repented. And he was rebuked by a woman he did not even know. And what did he do? He repented. Praise God. We'll look at that perhaps next time. But I'd like to turn our attention now to begin looking at Abigail. Abigail, the wife of a fool. While David and Nabal are something of a study of contrast, Abigail comes into the scene and immediately makes an impression. There's so much to say here. While Nabal, her husband, is described as harsh and badly behaved, Abigail is described as discerning and beautiful. It's a phrase that I take to mean, among other things, that her example is worthy of imitation. Her character adorned her life. And so now, next time that we're going to pick up more on... Next time we pick up more on how God providentially used Abigail to save her family and to save David, we'll do that next time. But right now, I actually want to stop and talk about a very sensitive topic that I do believe needs to be addressed. What do you do if you find yourself in a situation like Abigail? More specifically, what do you do if you married a fool? Now, one of the reasons I'm committed to preaching through books of the Bible without skipping around and picking is because if I was to just pick a passage and I said, church, and I'd like to talk to you about how to be married to a fool, the first thought you would have is, who's the fool, right? Not me, someone else, right? That's the beauty of preaching straight through the text. It's in the Bible and it's next, so let's talk, right? But also say this with extreme soberness and seriousness, that some of you may be married to a fool. Some of you may be married to someone now who will become a fool later. Some of you are that fool. Some of you are married to a man, I'm speaking specifically about men and women here, a man that is so vile and so selfish that you may find yourself in a major crisis because of his foolishness. And certainly all of us can relate to what it's like to be closely related to people who sin in a way that dramatically affect our lives. So there's application here. But don't misunderstand me. All men do foolish things, but some do more foolish things than others. There are some men and some women... ...who are so foolish and so destructive that they put the people that love them into very difficult situations. I'm not talking about one particular moment, usually. I'm talking about established patterns of sin with significant consequence in the lives of those closest to them. Namely, their wife and their children. A fool is a Nabal-like character that is probably not a believer even though he professes even if he professes to be one now i want to be very careful here and listen to me when i say this i want to be careful about how we or how i try to apply abigail's situation to a general audience i don't want to overapply and i don't want to be misunderstood i don't want to give you a license to go and do something that the bible does not permit I'm going to try to give meaningful applications and say things that are clear from Abigail's example. But one of the things I really want to say is this. Is that if you find yourself, women, married to a man who habitually shows these types of destructive tendencies, your pastors need to know about it. Please. There's a number of reasons for this. One is that you may need help interpreting your husband's behavior. The abusive patterns of a fool can manifest themselves in many ways and in varying degrees. There's not a clear formula. There are varying degrees, would we not agree, of violence, of intimidation, of verbal ridicule, of manipulation, especially with children, of denial, different degrees of chauvinism and abuse of male headship, and financial considerations. Many degrees that you need help thinking about. Another reason is that if your husband professes to be a believer, especially if he's a member of this church, he needs to be called to repentance and not by you, by someone else. Another reason I would mention is that you need pastoral help in applying the scripture. The more complex the situation is, the harder it is to know what is godly. And I'm not suggesting simply that a pastor would always know, but that that when there are more people involved, especially godly people, you are much more inclined to receive good counsel. Those, these situations are too complex and too fraught with difficult decisions and they are full of temptations that it is not wise or advisable to go through it alone. And there's no way to address this thoroughly from the pulpit and there's no I've not seen this addressed thoroughly in any book, so you need the help of the men who have been entrusted to care for you. But you also need spiritual and physical protection. There have been a number of instances in our church where church leadership have helped provide physical protection to women in this church. This is not foreign, something that other churches deal with. This is, this is real so I want to be careful about prescribing too much, too many specific applications from Abigail's behavior. So for example, I am not going to say something like this, okay? It is okay to go make major financial decisions behind your husband's back. That's what Abigail did, right? Major financial decision behind her husband's back. So I'm not going to say it is okay or wise to go make major financial decisions behind your husband's back, but I will say this. There are some situations that I believe it is wise to do that, and I will counsel you to do that. Do you see the line we're walking? I'm not going to commend that you, without knowing your situation, go do a specific thing from this. You see? So with all these caveats, let me briefly draw your attention to seven, I think I actually have eight, commendable actions that Abigail took as the wife of a fool. Lesson number one. Abigail recognized that she was in a terrible situation because of the decisions of her husband. There are many pieces to this. One part is that she was willing to admit that she was in a problem marriage. She was willing to admit that she felt like that she was in danger. She was willing to recognize that the situation that she was in was not her fault. But the result of the consistent ongoing pattern of her husband's sin... She wasn't trying to cover up his sin. She wasn't trying to save face for him. But she recognized that it was his sin. And so she did not feel the guilt for that. There are many applications here. But but I'm just going to keep going through these. Lesson number two. Abigail recognized that her marriage was so broken by her husband's sin that she had to make hard decisions. Let me say that again because I think that's really important. She recognized that because of her husband's sin, her marriage was so broken that she was going to have to make some hard decisions. I didn't always believe this, but I have come to believe that since marriage exists in a fallen world, there are times when a marriage can be so broken that it is difficult and even impossible to function as a man and wife, even if the couple is still married. Abigail knew her husband before chapter 24, right? She knew this was going on, but she didn't leave. She, it doesn't mean that she left, it doesn't mean she sought divorce, but it does mean that she was willing to act differently than she would have in a healthy marriage. There's some complicated issues here that I can't sort out through entirely from the pulpit here. Lesson number three, Abigail's actions were characterized by deep humility, I wish we had time to develop this point further because it's all over the text and it has so many implications for how to live godly when you're married to a fool. It's so tempting to respond foolishly when you're married to a fool or sinned against by a fool, but Abigail was humble. From the reverence that she showed David in verse 24 to the words, the wise, shrewd words she spoke to David to appease him, all the way to the way she spoke about her husband's failures, she was humble. And this is crucial for, very, for so many reasons. And one that I'll point out now is that it at least makes a person willing to get help and to receive counsel in difficult situations. She was humble. Point number four, Abigail took dramatic, decisive action to protect herself and others. Abigail did not know the future, but she determined that if she did not do something, her whole household was going to die or get hurt. She was not acting primarily because she believed that God wanted her to be happy. She was not primarily acting because she had fallen out of love with her husband. I'm sure she felt that, if she even had that concept. She was acting as a defender and a protector of others. Do you see what I'm saying, friends? Point number five. While Abigail took some actions to protect herself, she was also willing to still take on some responsibility for her husband's failures. She was still willing, and the the, the way I would phrase it, she was still willing in some way to function as his wife. She still was married to him and lived like that on some level. I'm still a little bit unsure how to interpret the details of her apology. Maybe I'll figure it out by next week. I don't know. But it's clear in verse 24 that she took on the guilt of her husband. Look at that. It's, it's there in the text. And I don't want to push this too far, but I also don't want to overlook this. So perhaps let's just say it like this. Abigail realized that in spite of her marital problems... She realized that she was still one flesh with this fool. And so she looked for ways and recognized ways that her life was intertwined with his. She was willing in some way to still function as his wife. Now this is one of those areas where I would recommend that if you find yourself in this situation, or counseling and loving other people like this, to include the church. To include the church, because it's tricky. Point number whatever's next. Thank you. Six. Abigail was determined to obey the Lord. She was committed to not sin. We have talked about this before, so I'll mention it briefly. It's a biggie. She was committed that no matter how much she was sinned against, she was not going to sin in response. Friends, this happens all the time. People are sinned against in gross, gross ways, and they respond by sinning. We are called not to sin, and she was committed to it. She did not consider sinful ways out but resolved to trust the Lord. Point number seven, this is so comforting. Abigail waited on the judgment of the Lord and it came. I was so comforted to read this in the text. Though Abigail did take some of her matters into her own hands, she did not take judgment into her own hands. But like David, she left room for God's wrath. And God's really good at everything he does. So look down at verse 38. God struck Nabal dead. you see? Judgment came, and she waited, and she only only had to wait for 10 days. Many of you will have to wait much longer, but judgment's coming. Whatever's next, 7, 8, I'm on H, whatever it is. Final point, we'll close with this, because this is comforting to all of us, because I realize in some ways this is not relevant to all of you, so let's make this relevant to all of us. I'll put it like this. God used Abigail's terrible marriage and her terrible circumstances to save the whole kingdom. We'll see this next time in more detail, how God's providential hand was involved to use Abigail to save David from massive sin, maybe even ruin. So let me encourage you by saying that for those of you who find yourself in difficult situations, whether that's as a spouse of an idiot, or in other broken relationships, that no matter what your difficult situation is, you never know what the Lord is up to. But know this, you can trust him to work all things together for good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. One final thought to close on. As we close with Abigail, we realize that in some ways she's sort of a picture of Christ. My favorite commentator called her a savior in skirts. For though she was innocent, she took on the guilt that was not her own to save others. Reminding us of a Savior. Let me close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for Christ, who far better than Abigail, far better than David, far better than Moses, took on the sins of those who hated him, of us. So, Father, help us to live in a relationship with others that mirrors the way that you have loved us. And we'll give you all the glory for it. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace. If you have questions about this, feel free to come talk with me. I'd be happy to discuss.